All right. Good morning. How you doing? Good. You look great. You look virus-free. Thank you very much. Good to see people in person. Thank you for joining with us, um, and thank you for joining us online. I just want to let you know, First Burleson is open, okay? We're open. Uh, we're going to keep it as safe as we can around here, but we are open. And we'll be open until we're not, all right? So there you go. That's a commitment from us to you, all right? <laughs> so I appreciate you staying connected and staying in tune as this thing ebbs and flows. So anyway, so just a question for you to kind of set the tone. What are you afraid of? What causes fear just thinking about it? Snakes, maybe? Spiders? Uh, zombies? It kind of feels like a zombie apocalypse, doesn't it? Uh, maybe your fears go a little bit deeper. Maybe they are fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of how people are going to see you. Maybe you're afraid of death. I mean, these are realities in our life, right? These are fears that many of us face. In fact, if you just try to go one day without something causing at least an element of fear in your life, it's really difficult. There's so many things around us, especially now, that can cause fear in our life. I think that's one of the things this coronavirus has shown us, even with our advanced technology and advances in modern medicine and science, uh, there's still fear that engulfs our planet because of something we don't fully understand and just kind of came on us overnight. So even as Christians, right, we deal with this issue of fear. Let's be honest. There are things that make us afraid. Uh, we're afraid to lose our jobs. Some people have lost their jobs. And we know that God's the God of provision and God is there and he's never going to leave us. But how is he going to take care of us? How is he going to meet this need? Those are questions we have when our world kind of turns upside down. So we're going to look at that issue of fear today because it is a reality. You read in Scripture, uh, how many times do we read the phrase, do not be afraid? When the angel appeared to Mary to tell us she was going to be the mother of Jesus, his first words, don't be afraid. When the angels appeared to the shepherds at Christmas, don't be afraid. The angels in the tomb, when Mary stuck her head in, first words were, don't be afraid. Jesus to his disciples after the resurrection when he just appeared in the rooms, peace be with you. Okay, so that's a reality then. They wouldn't say this. The Bible wouldn't have this phrase that many times if it wasn't a reality in our world. But then you look at passages like Proverbs 1.7. And this passage says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Throughout Psalms and Proverbs, we read that, read that phrase, the fear of the Lord. Okay, so what is it? <laughs> Fear the Lord or don't be afraid? Are those inclusive, exclusive? What does that really mean? Well, in our story we're going to see today is actually the fear of the Lord that removes human fears. So that fear of the Lord is a sense of reverence, a sense of awe, a sense of respect for who he is. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is creator of all things. He is the Alpha and the Omega. When we come before him, there has to be that sense of, I am standing before God Almighty. And not a fear that repels us, but a fear that compels us out of love and respect to be in his presence. And when we're in his presence, we discover that the reality of fear in our life can be diminished and removed because of his presence. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to open to John chapter 20 where we're, this is the resurrection story as John records it. 
And just to set it up, this is the day where Mary and some other women have gone to the tomb because as Jewish tradition, they were going to basically what we would call embalm the body. They're going to put oil and spices on the body of Jesus. And when they get to the tomb, they see that the stone is rolled away. So they realize something has happened. So they run back and tell Peter and John, two of the disciples, hey, the stone is rolled away and Jesus' body is gone. So Peter and John, they take off and they begin to run to the tomb. They get to the tomb. They look inside. They go inside. And all they see are the cloths that once surrounded Jesus' body lying there on the slab where his body once lay. He's gone. And John records, they believe. So Mary gets to the tomb, the other women there as well, and then everyone leaves but Mary. And this is where we pick up the, the story in chapter 11, sorry, chapter 20, verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I've not yet ascended to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Familiar story to us. We uh, talk about this at Easter all the time. When I was in elementary school, I had a, a bird dog named Rusty. Uh, he was my, my favorite dog. Uh, well, I just had one, but he was the favorite. Um, and so every day my job was to come home from school. I rode the bus home from elementary school. Mom and dad were working, so I would come home, and I had to feed the dog. So one day I come home, and I go out to feed my dog Rusty, and I notice Rusty has something in his mouth. So I, I approach him, and I discover that it's a rabbit. And Rusty is just violently shaking this rabbit and, you know, blood and fur flying all around, to be more descriptive. Uh, and so I go up to Rusty, and I you know, smack him on the bad dog, bad dog, and he drops the rabbit. And obviously the rabbit is dead. It's not moving at all. Right across the alley, a friend of mine, Tim Zipper, the Zipper family, 12 kids, and they raised rabbits. They raised rabbits for 4-H. So I recognize this rabbit. This is what they hope to be their grand champion rabbit. This is the one they think will bring home the blue ribbon. So I'm a little freaked out right now because... I'm sad about the rabbit, but I'm more afraid of what's going to happen to my dog, Rusty, if they find out that he killed their rabbit. So again, elementary school, cognitive abilities not quite fully developed. So I take the rabbit over to the water hose, and I wash off the blood and the dirt. Then I take it inside my house. Again, parents aren't home yet. I take it, in the, and I get the hair dryer, and I dry the rabbit and fluff it up. I'm trying to make it look alive, Right? So then I take the rabbit over to the zipper's yard, I sneak in, I put it in the rabbit pen with the other rabbits, and I leave, hoping, praying that nothing happens to my dog, Rusty. So parents come home, have dinner, I go back outside to play in the backyard, and there's my friend, Tim Zipper, standing in the middle of his backyard, holding this rabbit. Like, oh, man, busted. So I'm trying not to act like I know anything, so I go, hey, Tim, what's going on? 
He's got this startled look on his face. He goes, Ronnie, you're not going to believe this. But three days ago, this rabbit died, and we buried it in the backyard. And I came home from school today, and it was back in the rabbit pen. Now, resurrection freaks us out a little bit, doesn't it? So you can understand, if you were... If you'd seen a loved one pass away, you, you were at the funeral, you were at the graveside, you saw them lower the casket into the ground, and just a few days later, you see them alive, that's going to freak you out. Is it going to take away your fear or add to it? Probably going to add to it. Well, that's what Mary is going through right now. She's afraid. Her Savior, her friend is gone. He's missing. She saw him die on the cross. She saw them bury him. And now his body is gone, and she doesn't know how to respond. So in this moment where we have, as John records for us, Mary is standing at the tomb. And Mary is experiencing a turning. Just imagine yourself heading one direction, and all of a sudden you turn around and head the opposite direction. You have one perspective on life, and suddenly you turn and develop a new perspective. You have one attitude, and suddenly you turn and develop a new attitude. This is what Mary is going through. She's experiencing this sense of grief and sorrow and now confusion because his body is gone. And John actually uses the term turn twice in this passage, one in verse 14 and one in verse 16. Verse 14, where Mary turns from the angels he's talking to in the tomb to Jesus, who she thinks is the gardener. And then a second time in verse 16, when Jesus says her name and she turns towards Jesus. Now, just looking at that, it doesn't make sense. If she's already turning towards Jesus, why would she turn again? Well, John is using this metaphorically speaking the second time. It's not just a physical turning. It's an emotional, spiritual turning. There's something inside her that's turning as she encounters Jesus. And this fits John's motif behind his whole gospel. John's purpose for writing the gospel is to highlight the salvation of God through Jesus Christ and the human response to what Jesus did. And so it fits in this story. Mary highlights this completely as she turns from grief and sorrow to joy and hope, darkness to light, death to life. And this turning is involved in this story. It's interesting too in the, in the passion narrative, the story of Jesus as he's headed to the cross. If you remember the beginning, right after he had communion with his disciples, he went to the garden of Gethsemane to pray. And his prayer was, God, if there's any other way to do this, would you let this cup pass from me? If there's any other way to save the world, let's choose that way. And the father says, no, it's got to cost you your life. He prays that in the garden of Gethsemane. That's the backdrop. Here on Easter Sunday morning, we're in another garden because Jesus is buried in a garden tomb. And this is where God chose to raise his son from the dead. He's standing there again with a backdrop of a garden, which is beautiful, typically peaceful, serene, calm, and it's here where Mary experiences a true turning in her life. You can't read this passion narrative with the garden backdrop without having a sense of paradise, of heaven, of the beauty of God, even in the midst of suffering and pain. And this experience with Mary and Jesus and the angels is Mary turning towards paradise. Her first experience, she turned towards suffering and death. She enters, boldly enters into the tomb where she experiences the angel. She is there to anoint the dead body of Jesus. 
That is her focus. And then she encounters this whole experience. So Peter and John, they leave. The other women leave. Mary is standing there alone in her grief and in her sorrow. She is crying. See, Mary is still looking for a corpse. She's not looking for the resurrected Jesus. That doesn't even enter her mind. She believes thieves have come and stolen his body, and she just wants it back. She wants to pay her respects. A few fun facts about Mary, you may or may not know. She's referred to as Mary Magdalene because she's from the town of Magdala, which was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Many people believe that Mary was a prostitute, but we have no evidence of that. What we do know about Mary is that Jesus cast out seven demons from her body. That's how she first met him, when he healed him. She traveled consistently with Jesus and the other disciples. She's first mentioned in Luke chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, and then finally here in John chapter 20, there at the empty tomb. According to Luke chapter 8, Mary supported Jesus financially. So she, she had means, and she followed Jesus Mary is also referred to by many as the apostle to the apostles because she was the first one to see the resurrected Jesus, and then her job was to go tell the other disciples. So she shared the truth of the risen Lord to the other disciples, and then things took off from there. So she turns towards this suffering and death, still looking for a corpse, still focusing on sorrow, death, and grief, but then she encounters Jesus. And when you think about the process of turning to God, which many of us have, it really starts with a turning towards ourself, a turning towards the world to which we find insufficient, incomplete, maybe false, a turning to ourselves to try to figure out life and purpose and meaning on our own, and we fall short. We, like the world, fall insufficient to answer those questions of our soul which causes us to reach out. We realize that as Christians, we're not exempt from the world. We still face the worldwide crisis. We still face sorrow and loss and grief and death, just like the rest of the world. And because of that, we realize that the world doesn't have the answers that we need. So it causes us to reach out to something beyond ourselves. Right? When you've come to the end of your rope and you can't find the answers that, that you think will fulfill your life, you've got to find another source. John Calvin, put, John Calvin put it this way, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. For many of us who've given our lives to Christ, we came to that point to realize, I need God. I've searched the world over, I've tried everything I can, and nothing satisfies, I need God. And so we begin to turn from ourselves when we turn to him. If we do not turn to face the one, we can't face the other. I think that's one of the things this pandemic has caused us to experience. There's suffering all over the world. There's nowhere to run to get away from this. And because of our American culture, we don't like to deal with pain. We don't like to deal with suffering. We want to take a pill and make it go away as fast as we can. And so this has humbled many of us. Because all the things that used to work for us, they don't work anymore. They don't bring the relief that we'd hoped for. I read this phrase, sometimes when you are in a dark place, you think that you have been buried. Actually, you've been planted. <laughs> it's a different perspective, right? 
I mean, it's easy in this pandemic to feel consumed, overwhelmed, buried, stagnant, paralyzed even. It takes faith to see that you've actually been planted, that God has allowed this for a higher purpose, that he is walking you through this for his glory. It's a different perspective. It requires a turning. So Mary had turned initially towards death, hopelessness, darkness. Now she is turning towards the living one. She doesn't fully realize it yet, but when she hears the voice behind her, she turns. She doesn't recognize that it's Jesus. She thinks it's the gardener. Now, we don't know if that's because she had tears in her eyes, her eyes were blurry, she couldn't quite make him out, but we know that Jesus had the ability to camouflage himself. He did so with the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. They didn't recognize him until he prayed over the meal. So he had that ability to kind of shroud himself. For whatever reason, that's what he chooses to do here. And the first time she hears his voice, he says, woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Woman. That's how he refers to her. Same term that the angels used. Woman, why are you crying? Now Jesus says the same. She turns to recognize him. And then he says a second time, but this time he says, he calls her by name, Mary. Mary. And when she hears that, suddenly she recognizes who he is. You talk about a powerful moment. The angels called her woman, as Jesus did initially. But once he said her name, when someone says your name, that shows that they know who you are. That shows a relationship. That shows an intimacy. That shows care and concern. We love it when people call us by name. If I just say, hey, you, or hey, brother, that means I don't know who you are. I don't know your name. I don't really know who you are. If I know who you are, I call you by name. I maybe have a nickname for you. Jesus, when he said Mary, he reconnected with her because she felt so disconnected because of this experience. And upon hearing her name, she calls out Rabboni, which means teacher, which means I acknowledge you as authority. I acknowledge, I understand your teaching. And all of a sudden her eyes, her mind was open to who Jesus was. Not fully, because she still didn't fully understand what was going on, because her next step was to hang on to him. (laughs) I just pictured kneeling down and grabbing him by the ankles. Jesus, I'm never letting you out of my sight again. Last time I did, it didn't turn out so well. He says, you can't hold on to me. It's not time. There are other things I need to do. So in that moment, Jesus turned Mary from fear, stress, anxiety, to now joy and hope. Her tears of mourning turned to tears of joy. Can you imagine? With the depth of her grief now realizing that Jesus was there, she was in the presence of the resurrected Lord, the turning that took place. So Mary's journey to this tomb started long before this day, though. It started back when Jesus cast out the seven demons. It continued as she walked on those dirty, dusty roads with Jesus and the disciples. It deepened when she experienced personal loneliness when She felt totally abandoned by Jesus, by the other women, and by the disciples. She shed tears when she saw her Lord's assassination 
on the cross. And then she had boldness to look inside the tomb when she thought he was gone. Her journey from beginning to end required her to be vulnerable, to be open and honest about what she was going through. This is a picture of Brene Brown. She's a researcher who spent six years studying the causes of emotional distress. She felt like if she could find out what caused it, then she could measure it. She could calculate it. She could come up with a plan to stop it or help someone who was headed down that road to address it before it got too bad. But what she discovered, she didn't discover the way to manipulate emotional distress, but at the end of her research, she had her own emotional breakdown. And she shares this story in a TED Talk about that experience. And she was very open and honest in that TED Talk about what her research, her journey led her to her own emotional breakdown. And after she had shared this on the TED Talk, she began to think about what she'd just done and how open and honest she had been. And she told a friend, said, I'm afraid this is gonna ruin my career. Who's gonna look to me now when I admitted that I failed in my pursuit? And she said, there are about 500 people that watched the TED Talk, so you know, maybe if it goes to six or 700, I won't have to worry about it. But if it goes beyond that, I'm dead. I'll lose my reputation. I'll, I'll lose my credibility. Well, she didn't have to worry about six or 700 people because, because of the TED Talk and the people that watched it. There were 15 million people watched this TED Talk. The question is why? What was it about this talk, about emotional distress and failing to discover how it all happens that led so many people to want to watch it and others to tell their friends, hey, you've got to see this TED Talk. Well, she declares that it's because of her discovery. No, not discovering all the answers she wanted. She discovered that the main cause of emotional distress is shame. Shame. Identified in, in ways that we don't feel like we measure up. We're not pretty enough. We're not smart enough. We're not rich enough. We've fired people. We've been fired. We've had trouble in our marriage. Our kids didn't turn out the way we wanted. We've had family issues, all kinds of struggles, which leads us to the conclusion, I don't feel comfortable letting you inside because once you discover who I really am, you will want to disconnect from me. Once you discover how messed up I really am inside, you won't want anything to do with me, which results in our own shame, our own fear of being that open. And she was willing to be that honest in this TED Talk, which drew 15 million people to want to hear what she said, because what she did discover, discover is the antidote to shame the antidote to feeling rejected and disconnected is empathy. When she discovered that there were 15 million people that said to her, me too, <laughs> I know exactly how you feel. I've been where you are. I'm experiencing the same thing as you. I'm having an emotional breakdown myself. I am in distress. Her openness and vulnerability drew 15 million people to say, me too. Once they saw someone 
like her who could connect to them, they were open and honest enough to say, I have the same problem and I need help. Now, you don't have to go to the internet to find me too kind of people. You find it right here in this story. If you want to admit that you have felt fearful, lost, alone, abandoned, rejected, all you have to do is look at Mary. And Mary's response to us is, me too. (laughs) That's exactly where I was. That's exactly how I felt when they put Jesus in the tomb. But then, but then, in the midst of my grief, he appeared. That's the promise Jesus has for us. Our fear, our distress, our loneliness, our anger, our confusion, none of it drives him away. It draws him near. Our reality doesn't repel him. It compels him. That's what compelled him to the cross. That's what compels him today to say, I am with you, and I will never leave you. So if we're going to experience this turning like Mary did, first of all, we have to be open and honest about our reality. Where are you? Hey, I know it's hard at church because we want everybody to think that we're all together. Well, I'm super Christian. I don't have any problems. I don't have any struggles. I got it all together. My marriage is perfect. My family's perfect. Everything's perfect. We have that temptation, but we need to stop it. (laughs) It's not real. In fact, if you're perfect, you need to leave because you're messing up the whole vibe here. (laughs) Because we're all imperfect. So be open. The second thing is refuse to be paralyzed by guilt, shame, and fear. Just refuse. I'm not going to let it debilitate me. I'm going to deal with it and ask for help. Ask for help. Give someone a chance to be helpful. Start with Jesus. (laughs) Cry out to him. Tell him your fears, your struggles, how you really feel. Be open and honest with him. He will never reject you. And then ask him to lead you to someone who can help. That's why God wired us for community. We need each other. If we've not learned anything else in this pandemic, we've learned the need for community, to have people in my life that can represent the truth of God to me. And then ask for help. Maybe some of us need to change our beliefs. We live in a world that says, well, if you ask for help, you're weak. If you can't figure this out on your own, you're weak. You got to pull yourself by your own bootstraps, right? That's baloney. You can't. You're not created to. So make it easy for someone to help. Ask the right person, somebody you trust. I don't suggest going on a TED Talk and telling 15 million people your struggles. (laughs) But one or two that you trust is helpful. Be direct. Don't hint. Explain clearly what you need. Maybe you need to practice asking for help. But the truth of this story is Mary was able to turn to Jesus because he turned to her first. He spoke first. He approached first. He presented himself first in the midst of Mary's grief. And so her story of turning to grief and sorrow and pain becomes a story of turning to joy and hope. Why? Because he is present. He is present for you. He steps in to the middle of your grief. He walks in through the door of your pain. 
and he calls you by name. It's not dude or woman or, hey, you or brother. <laughs> it's by name. John, Mary, Peter, Ronnie. He calls us by name. And he invites us to turn from what is hopeless and helpless to a life of peace and joy and confidence. So that's the hope for us today because we will all face death. We'll all face the darkness of the tomb. The hope is before that you turn to the living one. And then not even death is scary. And the darkness is taken away. So the question is, will you make yourself vulnerable right now to Jesus? To be open and honest, even if you're mad at him, even if you don't believe in him, just to say, Jesus, this is where I am right now. If you'll do that and be that honest, I promise you will experience his presence because he never rejects us. So maybe to help you do that, here's a challenge. Today, just take a minute and write out your fears. What are you afraid of? Is it death? Is it darkness? Is it pandemic? Is it job loss? Is it your future? Is it your marriage? Is it your family? What are you afraid of right now? And then just say them out loud to him. It's good for you to hear it too. It's not weak to ask for help. It's actually a sign of strength. And then tell one or two trusted friends. Because again, God wired us for a community and he brings people into our lives that we can be that raw with and they won't judge or condemn us. They will simply love on us and be with us. The ministry of presence <laughs> is amazing. So just a minute, I'm going to pray. And then Michael's going to come out and lead us in another song as we close our service and praise to the Lord. And this is a time for you to respond. And we're not inviting you to come up front. And many of you are at home watching. And you can respond in the comment section. Also, we have a virtual connection point. Usually we have a physical connection point here. But you have a virtual. You can go on there on our website. You can go on Facebook Live and just hey, I just gave my life to Christ, or I have questions, or I need somebody to call me, I need help, I need prayer, whatever, and we will reach out to you people online right now to reach out to you in real time. So I pray that you will be courageous enough to ask for help and that you'll let us help because we love to help and we're pretty good at it. Let's pray. Father, you know us so well. And you know that fear is a part of our reality. And for those of us that know you and trust in you, still there are things that make us afraid, honestly. Mary knew you. Mary walked with you. Mary saw you face to face, and she was still afraid when things didn't turn out the way she thought. When she thought you were gone. 
And God, we know that's what the enemy wants to tell us, that you don't care, that you're not here, that we've messed up so bad that you can't rescue us. Those are all lies. But some of us have believed them. And there are people listening or watching that they're still trying to figure out figure out things on their own. They're still looking to the world for the answers that they desire, and they still come up empty. God, I pray that today is the day they recognize you for who you are. That the day they hear the voice of Jesus saying their name. And this will be the day they turn from darkness and hopelessness and grief and sorrow and death that they would turn to light, to life, to love, to joy, to peace, provision, confidence to you. You promise us if we simply cry out to you, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, believing that he died on the cross for my sins, and that you raise him from the dead three days later, your word tells us we will be rescued from the darkness. I pray that that is happening all over the planet today. No fear. Thank you, Jesus, for being faithful and forgiving and for loving us. It's in your name I make these requests. Amen.